You're all looking very handsome this morning. It's very foggy up here, isn't it? Must have a word to the lighting team here. It's not all about effects. I like to have see see out without thinking I'm I'm preaching from a cloud. Although that that's a, a yeah, that could be a good thing. Who remembers last Sunday? Yes. <laughs> Nobody here except the front row. We t- remember we talked about the, the tension uh, both outside and within the church caused by these two ideas that we have, the first of which is that we're called to be different from the world. And we talked about how that's covered in uh, Romans 12.2 uh, where Paul says, don't copy the behaviour and customs of this world but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. But the other thing is, of course, we're called out to make a difference to everybody else, which is epitomised by Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he says in 1 Corinthians 9.22, when I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. And yes, I try to find common ground with everyone trying to do, doing everything I can to save some. And we talked about how the tension between those two ideas of being different and yet still being able to make a difference is this balancing act of what Christians often term this being in the world but not of the world. And while there's no single scripture that encapsulates that thought, and I must thank all of you who thought that was worthy of discussion after the service on Sunday because it was... It was Gratifying to see that people had actually uh, got hold of some of what I was preaching. Um, I did actually do some study after that discussion. uh, And although there is actually no scripture that talks about both of those things, uh, for those of you who are interested, uh, there are a couple that are really close together, which I think probably do the job of explaining that. Uh, And they're in John uh, chapter 17 and verse 14 which says, I've given them your word and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. So there's a scripture there that talks about the fact that we are not uh, of the world. And a few verses later in verse 18, uh, Jesus says, just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And so there's that, there's that tension there of the fact that we don't belong to the world, but we have been sent into the world, which is, which is pretty close. So, so if you're looking for a scriptural basis of that, and I think that, that actually uh, covers that. And so last Sunday we talked about this tension within the church. And so this Sunday I want to talk about how we're actually called to have an impact outside the church. We're being sent out into the world as God's uh, united church. Uh, and we're there to, to reach unsaved people. And we come across two main ways of thinking about how this, this interaction and how we go about starting a dialogue or how we even start building one of those bridges I, I talked about last week. And I think it's helpful for us to look at these interactions in the light of one of Jesus' most quoted, uh, and again I'll use my fingers, encouragements uh, to the disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He starts off really strong. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Who are we? Right. Some of you aren't a few. Uh, Anyway, but he then goes on to say, but what good is salt if it's lost its flavour? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. Bit of a downer. 
So in G, but think about this. What do we use salt for? Apart from getting our arteries hard. It's flavour. But we forget the fact that in Jesus' day, salt was actually far more useful and important an element, not just for the purpose of adding flavour, but to actually preserve food. They didn't have refrigerators or freezers or canned food or, or vacuum packaging. Uh, when people had meat that couldn't be eaten right away, they'd rub salt into it, which would preserve it. Uh, and they used salt in all sorts of different food to keep it from spoiling. And so this makes Jesus' metaphor an even more powerful one because it's easy for us to subscribe to the idea that the world is insipid and that only Christians can make it taste better. We can go into the world and we can add flavour, just like Maggi sort of stock cubes and things into the world to, to give it a flavour. And that's, that's a nice and self sort of rewarding sort of thing to do. But we actually have to think about it even more so that the world is putrefying and it cannot stop itself from going bad. Only salt introduced from outside can do this. And so the church is sent out into the world as salt to combat the process of social decay. But Matthew 5.13 also tells us that this influence is conditional. To be effective, we Christians must retain our Christ-likeness. As salt must retain its saltiness, and our influence in the world depends on us being distinct from the world, not identical to it. And unless our saltiness penetrates the culture we live in, the decay cannot be arrested. Now, it's, it's, it's a far more serious sounding affair than just adding flavour to the world. So the first way of thinking about how we are called out to influence our culture is to view the interaction as a competitive exchange between two authorities, the authority of Christ and the authority of culture. And out of this thinking, particularly in the USA at the moment, we get this divide where, at least on a, on, a, on a nationwide scale, we get a vast chasm between conservative Christianity and worldly liberalism. And over this chasm, we have both sides basically throwing rocks at each other. I don't think there's actually terribly much attempt at building bridges over this chasm. Uh, anything I see on social media is basically rock throwing. And the trouble is, as that chasm gets wider and wider, the difficulties of building bridges is only actually going to increase. But the interplay of Christians and culture, particularly on a personal level, uh, should be less about competing authorities rather than active engagement. In other words, rather than pontificating about Christ's relationship to culture, we should be focusing on how to mobilise Christians to be transformative agents within that culture. You see, our strategy for engagement is in need of an overhaul because we're losing the cultural challenge. A prominent Christian commentator in the early 2000s observed, in every aspect of religious life, Western faith has met Western culture and Western culture has triumphed. Now, that might seem a little over the top, uh, but there is a a grain of truth in it. If we're wondering why Christianity is no longer the dominant demographic in our nation, we, if we look, we can actually see there's very little evidence of that salt that should be preserving or flavouring our country. 
One reason is clear. We've tried at least four different approaches to cultural engagement and none of them have succeeded. And we'll call them, because I'm in favour of the three R's. Who, who knows the three R's? Reading, writing and arithmetic. I don't know whether we still do, do those. But let's, let's call these, these uh, cultural engagement techniques the four R's. And I think we, we can equate to all or most of these, because we've seen them happen either in our lives or the lives of uh, other people we know or in the lives of older people like our parents. The first one, of course, is retreat. And this is the, the strategy which marks much of Western fundamentalism. Uh, and it still typifies the approach of many followers of Christ. And it involves pulling back from culture and creating our own subculture, which acts like a protective bubble against the corrupting influence of the world around us. Because the idea is that the culture is an infectious disease that we've got to quarantine ourselves as much as possible against in order to protect ourselves from catching anything nasty. Now, some Christians make this separation quite consciously, while others exist in a, a, in a bubble, a Christian bubble, without even knowing it. It's Christians who listen to Christian radio, watch Christian TV, go to Christian bookshops, exercise in a Christian-themed aerobics class. I didn't even know there were such things. Only have Christian friends and send their children to Christian schools. Now, it's not that any of these pursuits are wrong, but taken together, this represents an isolation from the world that constitutes basically a functional retreat from the culture that we live in. Now, retreat isn't always misguided. I mean, consider Daniel and his role in the Babylonian world. His place in that deeply pagan culture was, to say the least, mainstream. He was fully into it. I mean, he was, he was the man in charge, apart from uh, the, uh, the emperor, king, emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, with a name like that, you deserve to be emperor. It's better than king. But his personal standards were not worldly. His retreat was not from culture itself, but from culture's gods. And we should take the same strategy. The second R is revival. Who likes revival? It's the, it's the strategy to revive our culture. The resolve to pray for and the desire for the experience of revival is found throughout the Bible. And so we cannot deny the cultural impact that such moves of God can bring. Revivals have produced unprecedented mass evangelism, groundbreaking missionary activity and significant social change. But who knows that often these awakenings don't actually last particularly long. They don't have a long-lasting influence. But worse than that, a dependence on revival can lead to a passive approach to cultural engagement to simply wait for, hope for, or look to revival to solve, solve the challenge of cultural engagement is a passive approach. And if we read our Bibles, we would be hard-pressed to find any biblical support for such waiting. The third approach, perhaps most familiar to us today, is recapture. The conscious attempt to recapture our culture for Jesus Christ. And most of this is based in the idea that ours was once a Christian nation with government and laws based in Christian tradition and biblical law and therefore we should actively work to return our governing bodies and our laws back to their original intent. However, if you were a Christian during the 80s and the 90s, which some of us were, uh, you'd have recognised that this was often... Um, 
portrayed as something we like to call turn or burn. Anybody ever heard that phrase? And that was often the attitude that, that uh, very excited, very passionate Christians used on culture. They basically said, you know, Jesus loves you and he wants you in heaven, but if you don't turn, you're going to burn. And this was a, 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 a really popular thing with, with the unsaved world. They just loved the idea that unless they turned to Christ, they were damned to hell. And, uh, and, and expressing that to people really made great friends. Uh, not. Um, and today, as we've got many younger Christians who, who are approaching this idea of recapture, they want nothing, more, nothing whatsoever to do with an approach that was often caustic, abrasive and unloving towards those who didn't know Jesus. And so this, this effort to recapture our nation's Christian legacy has actually failed as a strategy and only served to alienate a younger generation. And the fourth thing is reflect. Uh, the most common reaction to the failure of the recapture approach is the reflection strategy. So that like a mirror, we reflect the culture and its values. And so rather than trying to take over its culture, we embrace it in an attempt to emulate what it says in 1 Corinthians 9.22, where it says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Now, unfortunately, while building bridges of understanding and relationship, which is admirable and often necessary, some efforts to reflect our culture have degenerated into just plain copying. There's a growing tendency to actually become the people that we're attempting to reach rather than attempting to build a bridge towards them. And we create church cultures that reflect the world rather than reaching into it. We have to understand that the intent behind the Apostle Paul's suggestion to become all things was not behavioural. We're not to reflect the world's culture so that its values and ideas are mirrored in our values and ideas. Paul's intent was to build bridges of understanding on which the two parties could meet. But, ooh, I'll stay very still. There are positives in all of these four strategies. The retreat into monasteries that we saw in the medieval times actually produced the strength to serve others, keeping the medieval world from entering what truly would have been a dark age. And while we're not passively to wait for revival, we are to labour and pray for it to break out. And as much as we might be tempted, that wasn't me coughing, was it? Are we having trouble with transmission here? Should I try something else? No, keep going? Okay. I'll ignore the funny noises that I'm making. Think of them as, uh, as curry last night. <laughs> Perhaps not. <laughs> anyway, uh, the fourth thing is, as much as we might be tempted to dismiss attempts at recapturing our nation through the political realm, we actually have to look at the Bible narrative and, and when we do, we find it contains those that did indeed change the course of human history through their active engagements in civil life. People like Joseph, uh, Daniel and Esther. And finally, reflecting culture to build bridges over which two parties can meet actually lies at the heart of the Great Commission. And yet these four R's fall short of the ultimate goal. And I believe we should take the best of all four and aim for something deeper and more lasting. A fifth R, 
which taps into each of these. We need renewal. I can sense the anticipation here. Come on, Chris, you're on a roll here. Dazzle us with an explanation of number five. What's the fifth R? You've told us about four. Explain number five so that we can go out and do it, or at least so that we can go out and have a coffee across the road. What is renewal? Now, if I could give you an easily digestible answer to that question, you have to admit it would neither be new or renewed, nor would it be particularly inspiring. But we need to actually move forward. And who knows the future is unmarked territory. We don't know where it's... If we need renewal, it actually needs something new. And if it's new, it stands to reason we probably don't know what it is. But we've got some clues. An editorial in Christianity Today recently stated, the goal of the body of Christ is not cultural transformation as much as it is personal obedience and service. Ooh. Oh dear. So it seems that it is within us that the renewal needs to happen. So I don't know whether you've, you've ever read your, the New Testament and noticed that neither Jesus nor Paul actually seem particularly concerned about addressing their immediate and most obvious cultural challenges with the Roman Empire. Because, you know, who likes to poke fun at the government? Or any, any even the local council gets, gets it pretty rough. But how would you like it if, you know, you poked fun at the Romans and you ended up your head on a pike? Yeah. <laughs> Apart from the roads and the schools. And the <laughs> yeah, we have the luxury of being able to actually protest and make our feelings and our opinions felt. Whereas we often find that a lot of the disciples, when they made just their faith felt, their deaths, their demises were far less than pleasant. And so you know, there were obvious challenges there which Jesus and Paul could have addressed. But they didn't seem as interested in altering that kingdom as much as ushering in an altogether new one. And that, in that kingdom, we are called to be witnesses. We are called to make disciples. We are to do justice. We are to love mercy. We are to feed the hungry. We are to care for the widows and orphans. And this is far from pursuing a privatised faith. We are called to be present in our culture as salt, and to be agents of renewal. And to do that, we're called to be visionaries. And I know that when somebody gets up and says, well, you're called to be visionaries. I don't know about you, but I always have this vision of these, these people going like that. Let us go forth and conquer. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to be that sort of person. That's not Visionaries are for people like you know, Pastor Phil and, and Brian Houston and and Yongi Cho, and, and people who have these huge dreams to, to transform nations and planets and things like this. I, I'm not sure I can be that sort of visionary. Well, that's not the sort of visionary that we're really called to be. We're not called to be the scary hand to the brow, let's go forth and conquer type visionaries. We're just called to be people who know where we're going and why. That's what a visionary is. And so... Who knows that we have tools to actually do those things? And those tools have never changed. 
And you probably got sick of me mentioning them. Prayer, evangelism, living by example, argument. Now by argument, I don't mean fight, infighting. Argument as in the, what it says in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to make a defence for your faith. Action. People see what we are like by the action we take. And of course, suffering. We all enjoy that. But the dilemma is that we all too often don't know what we should renew in our culture. We're willing to suffer, but for what cause? We are to embody faith, hope and love, but to what purpose? We know we should act, but where? We're bringing God's kingdom, but what does that look like? I'll go back to Romans 12.2. Don't copy the behaviour and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And here's the kicker. Then you will know, learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Now, good and pleasing and perfect have been translated by Bible scholars basically as goodness, beauty and truth. And these three have been called the three fundamental values of kingdom culture. Because the worth of anything can be exhaustively judged by the reference to these three standards. Goodness, beauty and truth. And that's what we're called to bring to the world. They constitute what we're trying to achieve through our efforts to renew the culture we live in as followers of Christ. Now, to unpackage all that would be really exciting and really long. But I want to leave you with the idea that our future isn't fixed. The ideas that we've had in the past don't determine our future well, they don't determine our successful future unless we change them into new ideas that we are thinking about in the present, right now, for a future that we cannot see. Let me leave you with just one example of how beauty is overlooked in our culture. And this is a story that some of you might know. And some of you might have heard as a, a, an anecdotal sort of Christian lesson. But it actually happened Friday, January the 12th, 2007. In the middle of morning rush hour at one of the uh, underground stations in Washington, D.C., a nondescript youngish man, a youngish white man in jeans, long sleeve T-shirt and a Washington Nationals baseball cap, removed a violin from a small case, placed the case at his feet, chucked in a couple of notes to seed the... Uh, the giving, and he began to play. But this was no ordinary performer. The fiddler standing against the wall was 39-year-old Joshua Bell, one of the finest classical musicians in the world, playing some of the ele most elegant music ever written on a $3.5 million Stradivarius. During the next 43 minutes, as the violinist performed six classical pieces, 1,097 people passed by. Would they have time for beauty? Would they even recognise it? No. Bell was almost entirely ignored. From over 1,000 people, only six or seven even took notice. This is an example of our modern tendency to reduce the idea of beauty to a matter of subjective preference as opposed to an objective value 
or even a glimpse of the divine. Consider David's declaration in Psalm 50. He says, from Mount Zion, in verse 2, the perfection of beauty, God shines in glorious radiance. And this wasn't a subjective assessment. God is beauty and true, be true beauty wherever it resides, along with the true and the good, is a glimpse of God himself. And we are called to give people more glimpses of the God we serve. Will you stand with me? I'd like to pray with you. We've all heard the, the term that we're called to be agents of change. But I want us this morning to take that one step further, to think of ourselves as agents of renewal. We're called to bring truth. We're called to bring goodness. And we're called to bring beauty into this world. I've only given you one example of the idea of beauty. But that actually takes a vision of what that is in our lives. Now, as a church, one of the, the things that has given us a vision of what we are to do, because who knows, there are lots of things that as churches we can do. And often, you know, there's a bit of infighting because you know, the church down the road is into one particular thing and they're, they're, they're critical of the other church further up the road that is into something different. And yet, you know, we're all, all churches are here for a different purpose. The thing that has driven us is that, that verse in Isaiah that talks about the fact that we will be the rebuilders of broken walls. We will be the restorer of people's homes and relationships. That our children will be called to rebuild cities. And throughout the last 20 years, that, that theme, that vision, that picture has driven, often very subtly and often unconsciously, everything that we do. We are called here to be a place of restoration, of growth, of rebuilding, of renewing. And that, that, that's the vision, that's all the vision we need to have as a church. We don't have to have the vision that somebody else has but the renewal part is that enacting that isn't the same today as it was 20 years ago and it can't be the same next year as it was this year so we actually have to stir ourselves not just to go with what has been but to have a vision of what can be and that actually takes more than listening to my messages and hoping that I'll give you the answers. <laughs> because that's like waiting for revival. We all have to be part of the answer. We all have to put our, our two cents worth in. And I know that we're often afraid to give our opinion or put our, our thoughts in because guess what? Most of them are gonna be rejected. I mean, we have a leadership team that meets fairly regularly. And I call on people to have ideas. And I, I, will, I will admit that 
I have a lot of ideas. And because I'm in charge, guess whose ideas get carried out the most? Not mine. Vicky's. <laughs> the thing I've discovered, the thing I've actually had to come to terms with in terms of leadership is I, I would say that I probably have more ideas than anybody else. And when I bring them, I have more ideas than anybody else knocked down and trampled underfoot and rubbished. Now, I could take the attitude that I'm large and in charge. How dare you do that? We're going with what I say no matter what. And that would be gratifying to me, but totally useless to everybody else. Or I could take the idea that if we all come together and have ideas, it doesn't matter who starts with the idea because I'll claim it anyway. You know, Nathan has really great ideas, but I don't remember any of his because eventually somewhere along the way, it becomes my idea. <laughs> and the thing about, I've learned to admit that, that if, if I get up the front here and talk about my great ideas, I've told the, the team to, to recognise that, okay, somewhere along the fact, I, I know that it wasn't my idea to begin with. But the fact is, it's become so much a part of what we do that I've claimed it. And it's, it's okay as long as people understand that I do realise that I don't come up with all the good ideas. And, and they keep me honest because as I've said, 90% of my ideas get trampled into the dust by my supportive team. <laughs> but all I'm saying is don't be afraid of thinking of new things, coming up with new ideas. Your idea might be the spark that, that brings something new that's totally different. I've had to take that attitude that my ideas aren't going to be the brilliant ones, but I could spark somebody else who's brilliant to bring some change that we really need. But if I'm too afraid to step out and get trampled, nothing will happen. Because it's not, it's not about individuals. It's not about ego. It's about actually coming together as a church and fulfilling the vision that God has given us for this church. And so I just want to pray that every single one of us here Every single person watching online who's a part of this church has the boldness to actually step out and say, I want to be a part of this vision. I want to contribute to this vision. Even if the, my contribution isn't what I, I think it, it might be, if we don't actually step out and be bold and do it, nothing's going to change. And so I just, Lord, I just ask your Holy Spirit to fall right now and invest us all with a boldness that surpasses our ego, surpasses our, our need for acceptance, but that allows us to recognise that we are visionaries, part of something enormous that you have set in place on this earth. And the part we are to play is in our DNA is what you've placed in us you know, even before we were born. And we ask you to let it bubble to the surface, to allow us to become a church of friends, a church of people who respect one another to allow iron to sharpen iron, to renew ourselves you know, by the renewing of our mind on a daily basis, to bring 
renewal to our culture, renewal to our nation, renewal to people who don't know you. Allow your spirit to soak into us and make us bold. In Jesus' name. Amen. While you're still standing, you might not have the boldness of the Holy Spirit in you because you've never asked the Holy Spirit into your life. You've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and your Saviour. And the the start of a journey of being an agent of renewal in our culture is to actually renew your heart your spirit, your soul by taking Jesus' spirit into you and acknowledging him as the Lord of your life. It's the first step that all of us have had to take. It's that step that Jesus talks to Nicodemus about, about being born again, about receiving a new spirit that leads us. And we can do that by asking God to come into our hearts, by saying a prayer that invites Jesus to be a part of us. And if you're online watching this, you'll see there's a little button in the chat that says raise hand. And if you press that button, one of our team will get together with you and pray a prayer with you just so that you can invite Jesus into your heart to start that journey of being an agent of renewal. And if you're here this morning, I'll be down here after the service and I'd love you to actually come to me and say, Chris, I want to start that journey. And we can pray a prayer together to invite Jesus into your heart so that you can start that journey. Is that good? You want to all be starting forward on a vision, on a journey, or you just want to sit back and go across the road for coffee? Well, I'm a generous person. I'll let you do that first. But I want you to think during the week, what are the things that we need to do? What are the things we need to stir up inside us? You know, over this next six or seven weeks, we're going to have a whole lot of different speakers coming up here, encouraging us, bringing us different aspects of the Word of God, not just so that we can have our ears tickled, not so that we can become knowledgeable of the Word of God, so that we can actually go out and change things. Let this be a time of transformation as we move forward in 2021. Thanks, Katie.